You're listening to the Bible 126 podcast. in session 16 of the book of Revelation, and we are going to review tonight chapters 10 and 11, which includes the temple and the two witnesses and several topics. But just to remind us where we are in the book, the book of Revelation, well, first of all, I like to always open by reminding you that it's the only book of the Bible that has the audacity to say, read me, I'm special. It's the only book of the Bible that says, pronounces a special blessing on the reader of that particular book. No other book does that. It also, in the first chapter, the end of the first chapter, has an outline. It gives you the outline of the book. John is told, write the things which thou hast seen, which by then he has seen a vision of Christ in the earlier part of that chapter, and the things which are, which will be the following two chapters, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, chapter 1, the first, from, uh, from 12 on, had a uh, vision of Jesus Christ that he describes. That's what he had seen. Then he's told to write the things which are, and there are seven letters of seven churches, which constitute the next two chapters that are the most important part of the book. And uh, so, obviously, we're not going to review it again here, but I highlight, if you're just getting into this for some reason, I encourage you, if you don't do anything else, you really want to master chapters 2 and 3. It's the part of the book that relates to each one of us and has full of surprises. And the things which shall be hereafter, metatauta, the things that follow after the churches from chapter 4 on. We believe chapter 4 on is, a, is pro- prophetic. In fact, in fact, chapter 4 through 19 is an expansion of a specific seven-year period we'll be talking about tonight. So we are obviously in the third of those three sections. And uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, John says, after this I looked, and behold, after this was the word is metatout in the Greek, hereafter, or after this. I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and so on. And we believe that this is, in effect, echoing the rapture, his harpazo. He's caught up into heaven, and he actually experiences. He's, this isn't a, 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 a vision thing that's sort of imaginary or symbolic. He's actually there. He hears. He sees. Uh, things are explained to him as they happen. He's actually uh, transported forward in time. Uh, to the rapture period, and uh, uh, very, very vivid uh, language, and and everything in the book is rendered into signs, and those signs are explained somewhere else in the Bible. There's no more telling proof of the integrity of design of the 66 books we call the Bible than to discover that every detail in this book is explained or anticipated uh, somewhere else in those books. So, but uh, we're obviously in the third part, the, the part hereafter. We noticed as we've gone through the book what we call the heptatic structures, heptatic, just a sevenfold structure, because we have the seven-sealed book that Jesus opens, and uh, each time he opens a seal, it brings forth uh, uh, a number of things. And uh, we notice in these groups of seven, there's always six, and then a parenthesis, sort of a catch-your-breath kind of passage, and then it moves on. And so... 
And as you went through the six seals, we had chapter 7, which dealt with a whole different issue before it went to the seventh seal. When you got to the seventh seal, it introduced uh, seven trumpets. And there again, between chapters, uh, trumpets, trumpet judgment 6 and trumpet judgment 7, again we are in a parenthesis. In this, case, in this time, the parenthesis is five chapters long. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. We're going to take two of those. And, and uh, we'll discover that the seventh trumpet, when it does blow will introduce seven bowls. And even the seven bowls have a little one-verse parenthesis in there. But the pattern is clearly uh, manifest the architecture of this book. And, uh, but we're going to focus tonight on two of the five chapters that make up this central parenthesis. We're at the center of the book, actually, interestingly enough. And uh, so that's just a quick snapshot of where we are. So we're in chap- we're going to look at chapter 10 and 11. Chapter 10 is going to introduce an angel with a little book, and we're going to encounter these mysterious seven thunders, and then we'll get to chapter 11. So that's our first section tonight, the little book in Revelation 10. Understand this is a parenthetical part. Chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, 14 are, are an interlude, if you will. They will be followed by the seventh trumpet that will usher in the seven bowls of wrath. We're going to encounter this mighty angel, very controversial personage. We'll talk about the different views of this. Uh, And he has a little book. And just what is the little book? There's many different speculations. Most Most scholars seem to feel it is the scroll we've been talking about. It's now been unsealed. And it's, it's, it's reduced by being unsealed. And, uh, uh, he, and John is instructed to digest it, in effect. And uh, so and we'll go through the passage. And then the seven thunders are going to utter their voices. And it's very strange because John was about to write what the thunders said and then is forbidden to. That's bothered me since I was a teenager. Why did he even mention it? He has launched 19 centuries of speculation as to what the seven thunders uttered, because we know they uttered something, but he was forbidden to, and very strange, because this is not a sealed book. Book of Daniel was sealed until the time of the end, you may recall. Revelation is distinctive, but it's unsealed, it's open, except for this peculiar little thing, and I'll give you some conjectures as to what that might be about. But let's just jump in. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was, as it were, the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. We're going to see very quickly that these allusions are very Christ-like. These are the same allusions that we saw in chapter 1 and other places describing Jesus Christ. Many, many commentators infer from that that this mighty angel is, in fact, Jesus Christ. There are some problems with that view. That's why some scholars don't buy that. He's obviously a very, very key angel, and he obviously is in a very, very key role here. But in the Greek, when it says, I saw another mighty angel, in the Greek, you've got two words for another, alos or heteros. If I want another pencil exactly like the one I have, I use the word alos. If I want another pencil of a different kind, I use heteros. See, in English, you can't discern that. But in the Greek, the the word for another There's one of two. You want another exactly like it or something totally different. That's the way it works. The word here in another is alos, meaning another of the same kind. Another mighty angel implies this angel is largely, largely like the other angels we've encountered. You follow me? 
That's an argument that this, uh, in another direction. So we'll explore this a little bit. This is the third appearance in the book of a distinctive, a special distinctive messenger. Um, one was holding back the judgments for a special work of grace in chapter 7, before the, seven, the 12 tribes were sealed. There was a messenger of the covenant pouring out fire of judgment in chapter 8, verse 5. And here we have one that seems to be, in some respects, some would argue, in the role of a prophet, priest, and king. And if so, th- that argument leads to the, those that believe that this is actually an illusion of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ in the Old Testament is sometimes appears as, with the title of the angel of the Lord as an Old Testament parent. That never happens in the New Testament, however. And uh, the more conservative you are, uh, the more you could argue that this is an angel, it's not Jesus Christ himself. But there are people. It mentions the clouds, and we could go through all kinds of passages from Exodus all the way through Revelation chapter 1, where the clouds are associated with the, uh, with the, the, with the Christ. He has a rainbow, which of course is echo of chapter 4 of Revelation, as well as Psalm 89 and other passages. And his face is the sun, is an echo of Revelation chapter 1, and also Matthew 17, the transfiguration. These are all familiar idioms that we tend to associate with Jesus Christ. His feet as fire or shining brass is the same idiom that's used in Revelation chapter 1. So these allusions clearly uh, uh, link our thinking to Jesus Christ. But was this, was this Christ or a very special representative acting on his behalf? It's a big debate among scholars. And we'll discover in verse 3 that he roars like a lion. And there again, there's a whole bevy of references, including Revelation chapter 5, where that's associated, of course, with Christ. And uh, so Jesus does appear in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And some people would argue that this is an echo of that. And it may be. There's no big doctrinal issue that emerges one way or the other, by the way. If you see this as Christ or another illusion of Christ, okay. Um, if you don't, that's, it's clearly someone acting in some respects on his behalf. Um, now, the, the, the other speculations that some commentators have, they speak it could be a very, very powerful key angel. And there are two candidates that come to mind. One would be um, Gabriel, whose name means strength of God. Many people don't realize that's what his name means. And uh, uh, Gabriel's always, in all his named allusions in the Scripture, always on a always on the same job description. He's always on an annunciation of the Messiah in some form, Old and New Testament. The other speculation, perhaps even uh, one can make a pretty good case for it, is Michael, whose name means who is like God. And uh, uh, he's the only archangel. There's only one archangel, by the way. And uh, we find, uh, we look at Daniel 10 and 12 and uh, so forth, and you find Michael fighting with Satan over the body of Moses in Jude 9 and these weird things. Some people favor him, that this may be an allusion to Gabriel, but uh, uh, we'll leave that unresolved. In any case, this mighty angel had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Terrific. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, John says, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. I wish he would just struck the paragraph then. But he indicates, so this has led to volumes. I've got volumes of speculations where people try to guess as to what the seven thunders said. 
which is pretty silly because if God wanted us to know what he said, he would have said so, okay? So um, there is, and by the way, if you look at Psalm 29, it does make seven allusions to the voice of God. Curious linkage, you won't learn anything from that particularly, I don't think, or I would have expanded it for the course, but you put it in your notes, you can look at it on your own. There is a bizarre application of this that I have to share with you. Um, There are certain seminaries that militantly teach against the idea of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, The the whole area of spiritual gifts is an area of a lot of controversy because it suffers from its enthusiasts as well as its detractors because there's a lot of people that get overly enthusiastic about certain aspects. Others try to argue that they're not the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. The most controversial of the gifts, of course, being the gift of tongues. Well, there, uh, uh, one of the seminaries uh, that is ag- aggressively uh, teaches that the gifts are not for today argue that the gifts were only until the canon was complete. When the canon was complete, those gifts were no longer necessary. That's their argument. The tragedy of that is all you have to find is one or two valid examples of gift and you shred that doctrinal position. So uh, that doesn't mean that everything that masquerades as spiritual gifts are, but I won't get into that here tonight. The point is, um, I once at, at, at a uh, conference challenged those, that, that particular school of thought by pointing out that the seven thunders in Revelation were given because you cannot build any doctrine on the basis that the canon is complete. I believe the canon is complete, don't misunderstand me. But it's incomplete in that there's a piece of it that won't be complete until those seven thunders utter and are recorded. Why is that there? I argued, and they thought I was being facetious at first. And I, offer, I, I do believe in the spiritual gifts minus flippancy. But, <laughs> but I was making the case because you, because of this verse, verse 4 of chapter 10, you cannot build a doctrinal argument that the canon is complete because I can argue it's incomplete. Not in the sense that it's incomplete in a manuscript sense, incomplete until the seven thunders are recorded. And, uh, um, and I, you may think I'm, that's a little elliptical, but I'll, I'll leave it. You can do with that what you like. Uh, let's move on. Verse, we'll get on to verse 5 and 6. We're making progress here. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things that are therein that therein are and the earth and the things that therein are and the sea and the things which are therein that there should be delay no longer. Time no longer in your King James with the real concept there. There'd be no more delay is what it's really saying. And uh, now this alone would argue for those that believe that this is a very powerful angel. It's not Christ himself because he's apparently swearing by Christ. But there are cases where God will swear by himself. There's examples of that too. So it's not a a tight thing. God put himself under oath um, when he made his covenant with Abraham. uh, And that's alluded to in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, 13 through 20. He swore by himself when he declared his son to be high priest. That's in Hebrews 7. And when he promised David that Christ would come from his family, which is alluded to in Acts chapter 2. You notice each one of those allusions are from the New Testament, interestingly enough, but reflecting on the old. So, so um, God can't swear by himself. But 
one would think that the tone of this is one that this angel is very, very powerful, but like probably the number two guy or whatever. But um, uh, anyway, that, uh, but he's saying that time, uh, there'll be delay, delay no longer. You remember when we were in the book here in chapter uh, five and six and so on, where the martyrs under the author were pleading, let's get on with it. Avenge us, remember? Well, be patient, guys. Be patient. No, not any longer. Now we're, going, we're moving to the big climax here. If you, if you want to hold to the view that that angel is Christ, you could argue that God puts himself under oath. And, and when he made his covenant with Abraham, when he declared his son to be high priest, in allude to in Hebrews 7, and promised David that the Christ would come from his family in Acts 2. And it's not time no longer, delay. It isn't that your wristwatch no works anymore. There'll be time no longer in the sense that there's no more delay is what that really means. And what it also means, in effect, as you put this whole thing in perspective, that the time of re- for repentance is now over. They've had their chance. And uh, uh, it's interesting that you're going to discover that the Lord Jesus is now going to pray for the world. It's a shock to realize when you study John 17 at the famous prayer, that intimate prayer, that Jesus does not pray for the world. He prays for his own in the world. He makes that distinction. But now he's going to pray for the world. And uh, there is no evidence ever that that Jesus prayed for the world in its evil state. And uh, uh, Psalm 2 tells you the whole story if you want to get in the background of that. Let's move on to verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he should... Remember now, see, we've had six angels, and this is a parenthesis from the six trumpet judgments. The seventh angel with the seventh trumpet is what he's talking about. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. The mystery of God. This opens up a whole canopies. There are mysteries in the Scripture. And you can make a fruitful study of chasing each one of these down. The mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are alluded to in Matthew 13. The kingdom in Mark 4. The mystery of Israel's blindness. Paul talks about in Romans 11.25. Very important to understand that. Because that Israel's blindness will be relieved after the, at, the, at the rapture. The rapture itself is a mystery. And 1 Corinthians 15 deals with it. The mystery of his, his will is described in Ephesians 1.9. The mystery of Christ in the church, Ephesians 5. And uh, a mystery of the gospel. And Ephesians and Colossians speak of the mystery of the gospel. Now you realize that some of these aren't crisp and ex- mutually exclusive. Some of them may overlap in what they really have in mind. You probably figure I've contrived here to have a seven-fold list. Wrong. I've got 14. Uh, mystery of iniquity is perhaps the most mysterious of them all. The mystery of iniquity does already work, we are, we're told in 2 Thessalonians 2. The mysteries of God and Christ in Colossians 2. The mystery of faith, 1 Timothy 3. Mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3. The mystery of the seven stars and golden lampstands, we saw that in chapter 1 that Jesus explained before that chapter ended, giving us a clue as to how these signs are to be, how the scripture will interpret them for you. The mystery of Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 also alluded as the harlot and also in, in Revelation 17. So these are just a list of these. I don't really see them as crisp enough to make a tight outline. Each one's worth exploring, but they, they over, in my, at least my perceptions, they overlap in the sense of that uh, they're not as distinctive as you'd like to, to make it a tight model, if you will. But let's keep moving. 
you can go into all of those, but it really just raises doctrinal issues you need to join and, and, and be seri- do a serious study with. Verse 8, continuing, The voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And so, what is this book? Most scholars seem to think it's, re- it's essentially the book that we've just unsealed that's in front. And what he's, uh, the seals have been loosed. And only Christ was able to take it to open the seals, but now the seals are open. And uh, we, have him in, we have Christ in the posture of a conqueror taking possession of that which he purchased. And we went through that whole title deed thing in chapter 5. He's claiming the whole world. Who is the God of this world? Satan. But that's all changing now because the usurper is going to be dispossessed. Remember the book of Joshua is a preamble or a, uh, a foreshadowing model of the book of Revelation where we have Yehoshua who is dispossessing the land of usurpers on behalf of his people. And the parallels between the architecture of the book of Joshua and the architecture of the book of Revelation are astonishing. And, uh, uh, and we'll, see, we'll see that come up again here shortly. But in any case, so, so he went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it up. See, what we are to do is not just read your Bible. You need to assimilate it. Um, there is a totally different kind of use of your Scripture. There's an expositional study kind of thing, and that's what we're typically doing here, where we, you go through the exegesis, which is what does it really say, the translational issues where there are some. From there, you go to exposition. Okay, what does it mean? But that's all head knowledge. That's quite a different thing to assimilate it, to take a psalm and reread it 10, 20 times. Uh, You'll discover that what comes out of that is a depth of understanding and insight that goes far beyond just the head knowledge. And that's part of what we're seeing here. And so... We have the meat of the Word. You know, God's Word is often compared to food. Bread in Matthew 4.4, 4, milk in 1 Peter 2, the meat of the Word in 1 Corinthians 3, honey, and so forth. Assimilation is essential. That's really what John is ordered to do, and it's something that you and I need to emulate. And uh, we could spend more time on that, but I want to get through the material. Let's keep moving here. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. I can remember uh, years ago when I was consulting, I had an engagement in North Africa, in Algeria. I was going to be out in the desert for a few weeks. So I took with me a, my Bible, of course, and an uh, uh, outstanding commentary in the book of Revelation. I was really decided, being, having, knowing I was going to have a lot of private time, I was going to really pour into it. And I remember that so vividly because on the one hand it was very exciting to really start to discover how it all ties together and, and to see the, the thing unfold and to sense a, that sense of urgency that we are indeed approaching the end time on the one hand. On the other hand, as you really get mature in your perceptions here, you begin to realize the futility and the emptiness of this world as we know it. Um, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, the, the, the parallels there, you know, it, it, at first it's very exciting and very sweet as honey. And same time as you really understand the need for repentance 
and the, the, the tragic mess that the world is, is propelling itself into. Uh, it, it's sobering. But in any case, the angel says to John, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. We're going to go shortly into the two, witness, to the, the two witnesses. And one of the speculations I don't happen to hold to, but I'll share it with you because some people do hold it. They argue that one of the two witnesses is John the, the writer. And they hang their view on verse 11 here. The angel says, Thou must prophesy again, implying that John has a second career to prophesy again. I don't hold that view, and you'll see why I don't, but I want to share it with you because it's just by way of disclosure. Um, what, I do, what, what I do think is happening here is I think, I think we're, we're going to see the same material amplified going through. Thou shalt prophesy again. That was, we're going to continue in the rest of the book here. So we're going to now shift to chapter 11. That was chapter 10. Chapter 11 has two topics that really constitute the body of our study tonight. The temple and the two witnesses. And uh, so we discover in chapter 11, the first two verses talk about the temple and the fact that the outer court of the temple will be committed to the Gentiles for 42 months. And then we're going to discover when we get to the next part of this chapter, the two two witnesses are going to be empowered in a very special way for 1,260 days. And if you recognize that months are 30 days long, you realize that those are two equivalent periods of time. And we'll talk more about that as we get there. So chapter 11, verse 1, John says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And this is like a measuring stick, what this is. Given me a reed like unto a rod. And And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So he's to measure this. That's a term used throughout the Old Testament, a number of different places. It's a, a shavet, a, a, a staff that's for measuring in Psalm 64, in uh, Jeremiah 10, and other places. Um, and it's usually measure, the measurements are usually made in anticipation of a chastisement forthcoming. But, uh, and judgment does always begin at the house of God. So we have this coming in focus here. The next verse... He says, well, he says, measure the temple of God, the altar. Oh, by the way, the word temple there is naos, that is the temple proper. Not the word, contrary word, that would be the general temple area. It's the temple proper is what he's talking about. Measure the naos of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, outside in other words, leave it out. In fact, the term actually is cast it out, exclude it, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, the holy city, of course, is what city? The Vatican? Rome? No, okay. Jerusalem, obviously. You bet. And there we got the forty-two months uh, leaping at us here. You know, it's interesting... um, I think most of you realize that uh, when the Romans uh, destroyed Jerusalem, they lost the temple, started the diaspora, the Jews are scattered around the world, started 19 centuries of dispersion. In uh, 1967, with the Six-Day War, one of the things that occurred as a result of that war is that they regained portions of the old city. Um, and 
the prophecy books lined the shelves saying that, from quoting uh, Luke, uh, that uh, Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times the Gentiles be fulfilled. And dozens of prophecy buffs argued, wow, the times of the Gentiles are over because Jerusalem is now in, in uh, Israel's hands. And uh, some of my early tapes are probably guilty of the same myopia, if you will. But the city is still being trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. That time, the times of the Gentiles starts with Nebuchadnezzar and finishes at the end of the tribulation under the thumb of the Antichrist. And uh, so if you, go to, if you go to Jerusalem and try to go to the Temple Mount, you're shocked to discover it's in Muslim hands. The Gentiles are controlling the most sacred part of that piece of real estate today. So the times the Gentiles has not expired yet. It's still, in fact, it's going to reach its climactic period. But in any case, here is a specific illusion that the outer court of the temple that's here described is given unto the Gentiles for 42 months. They'll trample it. Now, you've probably noticed that what I'll call these half-week designations. Any, if you re- recall our study of the 70th week of Daniel, it, the, that seven-year period is divided into two halves. Each uh, half of that, s- that week of years in Daniel 9.27 gets its definition. Uh, in some places, it's called tw- a half is called 1,260 days, Revelation 11, and also 12, that illusion occurs. It's 42 months in Revelation 11 and also in Revelation 13. Um, and uh, we also have a phrase you'll run into in Daniel 7 and 12, and you'll, it'll, we'll run into it in Revelation 12 again, time, times, and the dividing of time. And in the English, it sounds kind of strange because you and I are used to having singular and plural. We're not used to what's called a dual. Some languages, Aramaic being one of them, others have what you call call a dual. Uh, you can have single, singular is obviously one. A plural is more than one. In some languages, there's a middle one called a dual. The only place we have it in English is w- with the word both. If I told you I had all my friends over last night, both of them, you know, I only have two friends. That's that's an example of a duel. Um, It turns out that time is singular. Times here is a duel. So time, times, the dividing of time is a literary way of saying three and a half. And it's another allusion to the half year. This strange period of time, this seven-year period, called the 70th week of Daniel, is the most documented period of time in the Old and in the New Testament. And uh, it's very specific. The Holy Spirit's done everything but lay it out in microseconds. Um, But uh, it's it's interesting how it is probably the linkage that ties all these prophecies together that talk about the first half or the second half. Because in the middle of that seven-year period occurs a key milestone event an event that Jesus Christ himself designated to his disciples as the key to understanding end-time prophecy. And uh, that's all by, by way of review of the 70th week of Daniel. But this duel is used of years, and you, you find this duel used in Daniel 4 and other places. Okay, the temple. This is it's generally reckoned, uh, so-called Herod's Temple. Uh, the rebuilding of the temple is a big topic. How do we know the temple is going to be rebuilt? Well, Jesus, Paul, and John all make reference to it. Jesus highlights in his confidential briefing to his four disciples about his second coming, 
he identifies the, the, the desecration of this temple as the pivotal event in prophecy. So we know it will be standing at that time, in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel. Paul also details what's going to happen in that strange time, in 2 Thessalonians 2. And of course, John is making reference to it here. The temple of God, let's not confuse ourselves. That term is used of this portable sanctuary called the tabernacle that we're all familiar with from the book of Exodus on all through the wilderness wanderings. They had this strange portable sanctuary that the Levites uh, dealt with. But you finally get to the time of David and then Solomon where Solomon is given the opportunity to build the permanent one. The tabernacle is replaced by a permanent temple. David wanted to build it, but God wouldn't let him, so he says, that's okay, I'll pay the bills. So David assembled the the resources, and Solomon built it. And God appears to Solomon and tells him what he wants. So it's it's, it's it's a temple that's never been matched. Even Herod, with all his grandiose things, didn't match Solomon's temple. That, of course... Uh, finally leads to the Babylonian captivity where Nebuchadnezzar takes them captives and then some 19 years later finally gets fed up with their, uh, the, uh, the difficulties in uh, keeping them under control. He finally levels the city of Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And um, so that starts a 70-year captivity that when the Persians conquer the Babylonians and Cyrus gets the, finds this letter written to him in the book of Isaiah, he releases them, gives them financial incentives to go home and rebuild their temple. And in the book of Ezra, they begin. Have a lot of troubles following through, but they finally do build it under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And he's in the messianic line. He's not a king. He's under Persian domination, but he is the, the leader that uh, builds a temple that's very modest. In fact, so modest, those that were children and saw the... Solomon's temple, they wept because it was such a mediocre rendering compared to Solomon's. But as the years go by, finally Herod, in an attempt to popularize himself, he remodels it. You and I would tend to call Solomon's the first temple, Zerubbabel's the second, you'd call Herod's the third. But that's not the way the, the Jews talk about it. That's not the way the scholars talk about it. They regard Her- Herod's temple as simply an, an expansion and remodeling of Zerubbabel's temple. So they call Herod's temple the second temple. You follow me? It's just a nomenclature, but I don't want to confuse you. Uh, but the temple we're talking about, you would call the third temple. Don't confuse the temple we're about to talk about with a millennial temple that will occur when Jesus returns. And that's described in the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel among other places. And we'll talk more about that when we get to Revelation 20. But the place, and then there's, after the millennium, after this thousand-year reign, there won't be a temple that will be a direct um, experience with God in heaven. There will be no temple there, strangely enough, because God will be dwelling with us. But uh, anyway, that's the, the, the temple we're dealing with here in this, in chapter 11, is what you and I, what's commonly called the third temple. It's the temple that the Jews are aspiring to, but they're in for a shock because the destiny of this temple is that it's going to be desecrated by the Antichrist. And uh, when he gets taken care of and the Lord returns, there'll be a whole other thing, and we'll talk about that when we get later in the book of Revelation. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem is fabricating the, uh, dev- the elements for the coming temple. And they've built about at least 63 of the 104 or 103 implements that they feel they need. There are several hundred young men in training. And by the way, these implements aren't just designed as art pieces. They are designed to be actually used uh, in worship in the, in the, 
in the, uh, the, the temple uh, that they're aspiring to. Now, let's talk a little bit about this Temple Mount. This is an aerial photograph looking uh, north, uh, looking, excuse me, looking southeast um, from the air. And uh, the western wall, it's not the Wailing Wall, it's bad, that's opposite nomenclature. They call it the western wall or the Kotel. Um, the Dome of the Rock that gives Jerusalem its characteristic uh, skyline, the Muslim uh, 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 building. Not, it's not a mosque, by the way. It's not the Mosque of Omar. It wasn't built by Omar, and it's not a mosque, but that's, that's technicalities. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is the principal mosque, and we'll talk about these things here in a minute. In fact, uh, it'll make more sense if we look at an aerial view. North is at the top in this view, and uh, we have the, the uh, traditional view that's still embraced by it's the official position of the rabbis in Israel. It's also the official position of the Temple Institute, is that the temple stood where the Dome of the Rock stands. That's the tradition. Uh, the, the, they, they, they put together a number of things. They also believe that's where Abram offered Isaac. There's reasons why they, they're overlooking the fact that I believe that was further to the north, but that's neither here nor there. That's their, that's their traditional view. And, uh, it's the, and they, they believe that the Dome of the Rock was deliberately placed there to obscure the Jewish presence. And there's a whole background. I won't take the time here. I can tell you candidly, people who take scientific or archaeological interest in this area think there's alternatives to that view. Perhaps the most popular one some years ago was Dr. Asher Kaufman's uh, writings about the Northern Conjecture for a number of reasons that I won't bore you with. Uh, for, well, partly because of a lineup with the Golden Gate and certain aspects of the Mount of Olives and certain rock outcroppings. Uh, Dr. Kaufman, he's actually a physics professor at Hebrew University, but he's quite an expert on the background of the temple. If you read his, his book, is published in Hebrew except for one page in which Chuck Smith and I are given credit for having financed his early research. But in any case, uh, his conjecture created quite a stir some 15, 20 years ago when it first emerged. If for no other reason than if he is correct, the Dome of the Rock would be in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And that would seem to fit the Revelation chapter 11, the model, if you will. And Dr. Kaufman's a good friend, and we, we, we appreciate his friendship, but I have to tell you candidly, we've come across something else that intrigues us even more. There are some problems with either of those views if you try to build a three-dimensional model of the Temple Mount, and in that model incorporate what we think we know from the major documents, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Tesefta, the Mishnah, the writings of Josephus, among others. And as you do that, you run into some problems, because there's there were there's places where Agrippa, King Agrippa, from his palace, could look down in the Azara. The Azara is that part of the temple where they did the sacrifices, and he could see in there. Well, if you try to build that, it turns out you can't do it topographically because the, there wasn't a building. His palace wasn't that high to see over the. It just doesn't work. It turns out. A similar problem occurs with the Roman surveillance of the Azara. The Romans had a place where they could watch it. The Jews didn't like that. They appealed to Nero, and Nero did give them permission to build a partition so the Romans couldn't watch. But the point is when you try to reconcile that three-dimensional model, it doesn't work because the, the topography doesn't work right. There's also a water aqueduct that fed the temple. And to make a long story short, if the temple stood where the Dome of the Rock stands, it would be 21 meters too high to be fed by the aqueduct. The bedrock goes, drops going southward. So where you have the temple too high for these things, you've got to lower it somehow. That means you've got to move it south. So then it starts to work. You follow me? And so 
There's also a, a critical moat uh, that uh, uh, the, the moat would, the place that they think, that most people think is the Antonia Fortress would be, would put the moat between it and the temple. Uh, and, and obviously that doesn't make sense because Antonia Fortress was built to protect Jerusalem from the north. The moat would be on the north side of the, the fortress. The fortress was adjacent to the Temple Mount. When you cut through all of that, there is a belief by some scholars that the, the Antonia Fortress actually was where the Dome of the Rock stands today. The temple itself was further to the south. And uh, there's an issue with the Holy Gates elevation. I won't go to that here. But Tuvia Segev is an architect in, in, uh, in uh, Tel Aviv who's, among other things, quite well known for really having pioneered taking a good second look at the, at the archaeological presumptions here. And a very bright young man, and we've had, uh, had him speak at, uh, our, on our trips when we, when we organized the Temple Institute, uh, or Temple, uh, uh, Jerusalem Temple Conferences. We did that in the past. We're going to probably do it again uh, this coming year. But one of the things that Tuvia noticed, he noticed the Dome of the Rock, the Al-Qa'z Fountain, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are on a center line. Now, to an architect, that implies a plan. And that caused him to do some research. He investigated how the Romans built... Oh, you need a little bit of background history, first of all. The fall of Jerusalem was in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. About 132 A.D., some 60 years later, Bar Kokhba has his famous revolt where he throws off the yoke of the 12th legion, something they never recovered from. It takes the Romans three years to get their act together, but they finally regain Jerusalem. And by then, Hadrian has decided that they can no longer rule this unruly place as long as there's any Jewish presence in Jerusalem. So he orders the city of Jerusalem plowed under. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The city wasn't. But in 135 A.D., they plow the entire city under, and they build a Roman city on top of it called Aila Capitolina, which is named after Hadrian's middle name and whatever. And it's built over the city ruins. We also know from the records that they built a temple to Jupiter over the site of the Jewish temple. You say, well, great. What does a temple of Jupiter look like? Well, and also they put in a... According to Jerome's commentary on Isaiah, there's an equestrian statue of Hadrian was put right in the middle of, over the Holy of Holies. Those are in the records. Well, it turns out there is a Jupiter temple at Baalbek, Lebanon. In fact, it was built by the same guy at about the same time as the Temple of Jupiter was built in Jerusalem. The one at Baalbek is, is, is uh, you're able to analyze it and study it. This will mean more if I show you an aerial view of it. The way the Romans in the 1st and 2nd century built their temples, they would start with a rectangular basilica, temple proper, Across a courtyard, they'd build a polygon, sometimes a hexagon, sometimes an octagon, sometimes a circle. And in that courtyard between the two, they would put in the center a key statue and other ornamentation. That's their basic architectural model. If you take this floor plan of the temple built by Antonius Pius in Baalbek, and you, you take it and you lay it on top of the um, uh, Temple Mount, it fits perfectly. The Al-Aqsa Mosque has been rebuilt six times in its history because of earthquake damage, so it doesn't fit exactly the dimensions, but it's close. Uh, obviously, the Dome of the Rock is an octagon, not a hexagon, but other than that, they fit nicely. If this inference is correct, what it implies is that the Romans built a temple to Jupiter over the Jewish temple. That, la that would be about the 2nd century. When you get to the 6th, 7th century, and the Muslims 
overrun Jerusalem. They convert, oh, excuse me, in the meantime, in the third century, the world converts to Christianity. So these things get converted to Christian use. When the Muslims overrun them, they convert them to Muslim use and, and rebuild on the foundations, the, the, the structures that are there today. It's interesting that the, if the, temp, the uh, equestrian statue to Hadrian was over the Holy of Holies, the likely place it would be is right in the middle of that courtyard. What's in the middle of that courtyard? The Alcaz Fountain. If you've been there, you know there's a fountain that they can wash at and so forth. What's interesting about that is the fear of every Jew is they would not want to inadvertently walk over the location of the Holy of Holies. They don't know that it's there, but they couldn't anyway because of the fountain in the way. Follow me? The dream of every Jew in the, over the 19 year, uh, centuries has been to get as close as he could to the Holy of Holies. Well, that, the, 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 the Western Wall is as close as they can get. They're closer than they realized because they thought they think it was further north. No, it's actually right across from there. So the architecture, all of this is by Antonius Pius. The same guy did both of them, and the Hadrian statue over the Holy of Holies appears to be there. So that's, this is one conjecture, but it holds, it holds a lot of uh, merit. So there's three conjectures. The southern conjecture that would be exemplified by the current writings of Tuvia Segev. It's not a new idea. It's been there, there's lots of architects in the, uh, through the centuries that have inferred this for several reasons. There's, of course, the traditional view that is still the official view in Israel today. And, of course, there's the northern conjecture by Asher Kaufman. We will not know until we can get at that to do serious archaeological study, which it is. But the Muslims, with bulldozers and trucks, are destroying everything they can find that would imply any Jewish presence to the Temple Mount. 18,000 tons of artifacts have been put on the, on the dump by the, 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 the... I won't get it out all here. Anyway, if you take a thermograph, an infrared photograph of the eastern wall, um, a thermograph is energized by heat release, and so it gives you clues as to what's, what structure lies underneath. And it's interesting, there is a gate that would line up with uh, the Alcaz Fountain that, is, that might be the real golden gate rather than the traditional one. Bear in mind that wall is a 15th century Turkish wall. It, it, what we're seeing is hidden behind it. So there's lots of opportunity here for research as the opportunity might present itself. It turns out the bedrock drops so much that you could actually rebuild the temple in a modest, modest form without touching the Temple Mount, putting it underneath, because the rock drops up. This is very fanciful. It obviously isn't going to please either the Jews or the Muslims, but it is a creative proposal. It dramatizes the, the, the elevational issues that you're dealing with. And we have briefings on all this if you want to get into it more seriously. Well, let's get to the other meat of this uh, chapter, and that's the two witnesses. We saw the temple measured in chapter, the first two verses, and now we have the two which they are empowered. These two strange witnesses are empowered for 1260 days. Verse 3 of chapter 11, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Boy, um, I want to remind you that Joshua, when he entered, took led his war to this, against the nations of Canaan, his predecessor Moses sent in 12 spies, remember? Joshua only sent in two, remember? They were called spies, but I think all he did is get Rahab saved, so I'm going to call them witnesses. Um, so I'm, that, that parallel I'll let you look at when you study the book of Joshua. But um, 
My two witnesses. Why two witnesses? Well, because the Scripture always requires two witnesses for a thing to be established. That was the, that's in the Torah. That's in the law. And uh, it's interesting that there's always two angels at the transfiguration, at the resurrection, at the tomb, and at the ascension. But check your Bible. They're not angels. They're two men. There were two men that morning by the tomb. We assume they're angels. But we're jumping to conclusions. There are two men that were there when the clothed in white that went at the res, at the ascension. And I'm going to suggest the possibility that the same two men are here in this um, episode. I give power to my... Boy, these guys... Now, they have a ministry. They have the kind of tools in a ministry you'd really like to have. Uh, we'll get into that here in a minute. Clothed in sackcloth. This is a ministry of repentance. It's not a ministry of grace. It's a ministry of repentance. But by the way, my two witnesses, in the English, you don't quite get the impact. What it says in the Greek is the, the two witnesses of mine. And there are cases in the Greek where the the isn't an incidental article. It's a form of emphasis, intense emphasis. What this implies in the Greek, that these are two witnesses that you previously know about. They're important. They're significant. The two witnesses of mine is what it really says. A subtlety that will become important as you try to wrestle with who, who are they. Well, first of all, they're identified historically for us in, in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. The olive trees are the trees of oil, if you recall. And this is all an allusion from Zechariah 4. It's a very clear historical allusion. Zerubbabel and Joshua were the two guys that reestablished Israel after the captivity. Zerubbabel was the leader, the governor, if you will, and Joshua was the priest. And the, the two of them teamed up to reestablish Israel, and they're talked about in Zechariah 4. In fact, they're modeled as a menorah that is fed by pipes that come from olive trees, two olive trees. In other words, the, it's a vision, but the point is the olive tree, the oil from the olive trees goes directly into a bowl which feeds the menorah. It's a, the, the, the imagery there is trying to convey that they have a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what that's talking about there. And that's what is idiomatically here. So historically, the, the allusion is to Zerubbabel and Joshua. The real question is, what is it prophetically? And, and obviously, in, in that passage, Zechariah ch chapter 4, the idiom, idioms there talk about being continuously filled by the Holy Spirit. But let's take a look at the peculiar powers that these two guys have. If any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. You know, there's times when you're facing a hostile audience, you really would like to have some of those powers. <laughs> you don't agree? Zap! You know? You got a problem with what I said? Zap! You know? It's interesting that John and James wanted to do that, and Jesus rebuked them. You may recall in Luke. But here they have that power. And look, look at what, more specifically, these have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of the prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. As often. 
I don't know if you saw the movie Bruce Almighty, but it sort of comes to mind here, right? No, this is, uh, these, the, there are four specific powers. Who do they remind you of? Moses, indeed, yeah, and Elijah, both. Let's talk a little bit of identities. In John chapter 1, John the, ba- John the Baptist was creating such a stir that the temple sent an inquiry team over to Jericho. That's 20 miles away, by the way. They had such a crowd drawn from Jerusalem for his meetings in, 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 at, at Bethabara in, 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 uh, on the Jordan River that uh, they had to check it out. And when they, they said, are you the... And as they inquire, who, John, who are you? You could tell, they point out there's three different possibilities they were expecting. Are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. I'm here to prepare his way. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Or Moses. Now you'll discover these three, there was an atmosphere of expectation because the book of Malachi makes reference to the fact that, uh, that, the, that the Messiah w- was coming. Malachi also points out that Elijah would come. In fact, that is celebrated at every Passover. If you go to a Jewish home, there's always, they knock at the door to see if anyone's there, and they also have an empty chair for Elijah. So they're expecting him to in, in a, ahead of the, the Messiah. Also, Deuteronomy 18 implies that the, that the person they call the prophet of Moses. But these three, they, they inquire of John the Baptist, are you this, are you this, are you this? And no, he's not, and he gives his answer. But the point is, you can understand the expectation there. John the Baptist said he is not the, 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 uh, any of these. Um, he's, just the, he's a forerunner. And that's all in John 1. It's also in, uh, alluded to in Matthew 11 and 17. John the Baptist was not Elijah. He could have been had they accepted him. That's a whole, that's a strange uh, line of reasoning from a remark that Jesus made. But John the Baptist did not turn the hearts of the children as Malachi had predicted, nor usher in the great and dreadful day and so forth. These are things yet to happen. And uh, let's talk about identities. There are two ministries in the Old Testament that are unfinished, that were not finished. Moses blew it. Here he was in Egypt 40 years. Then he, he's on the run for having killed an Egyptian. Then he's in Midian for 40 years. Then he goes back and does the Exodus thing. And then he wanders with these, this entourage for 40 years in the wilderness. He's 120 years old. And these are an unruly, stiff-necked bunch. But Moses is told to do certain things. He previously had struck they needed water. He prayed to the Lord to strike the, strike the rock, which he did. Water came. Great. Years later, they're again without water. And the Lord says, speak to the rock. And Moses by now is so frustrated with some other things. He went and struck the... He did the way he did the last time. And God calls him to the side and says, you, didn't, you, you, you haven't represented me accurately. You, you let them think I'm mad at them. I'm not mad at them. So because he didn't do it the way God said... You don't get to go in the promised land. 120 years of commitment, doesn't matter. You'll get to see it from the hill, but you're going to die before they go in. And he accepts that. But it's kind of a shock when you stand back and, and, and look that all over. Um, but Moses' ministry, I'm going to suggest to you, was unfinished. Another one is Elijah. He was caught up in a whirlwind. These are the two, for lots of reasons, that I suspect... Don't take my word for it. I'm just explaining why we, why we hold the view we have that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, literally. In fact, 
I think they had a staff meeting with the Lord about a second coming. We call it the Mount Transfiguration. And uh, in Matthew 17, uh, uh, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus on the mount. And Moses and Elijah show up. And Peter is so impressed with the whole episode that in his letters, Peter, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he makes reference to this, and he makes an allusion that they were discussing the second coming, his death and, and return. So I, that's why I should probably put staff meeting in quotes. It's my thing. And, uh, but in 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1, Peter gives a hint as to what that was really all about. But um, the unique powers, Elijah, his, in his ministry, one of the things he did is he called down fire from heaven. Remember Mount Carmel and that whole dramatic scene? There were several occasions where he did that. He also shut heaven, and, then, uh, and it's interesting that in the Scripture, you know that he brought rain after a three-and-a-half-year drought. What you don't learn from the Old Testament, but you learn from the New Testament, because in Luke 4 and also James 5, it makes reference to the fact it was Elijah that shut the heavens. And so he shut the heavens, and he also then brought rain, and the duration of their drought was three and a half years. Interesting, because that's the same duration involved with the two witness situation. Do you see the pattern? This leads to something else, by the way. There are two different hermeneutics about prophecy. Most of us think of prophecy from the Greek model. Prediction, fulfillment. A prediction, fulfillment. That's our mindset for prophecy. That's not the Jewish mindset. The Mishnaic mindset is that prophecy is pattern. They, they lean heavily on the patterns that occur. And it's interesting to see these patterns emerge. Moses, of course, turned water into blood in Exodus 7. All of us, I think, are familiar with that. And all kinds of plagues in Exodus 8 through 12, you're familiar with that. These are the four powers that these two witnesses have, and I submit that they are distinctives of Elijah and Moses' ministry. And it's probably the most powerful of the arguments here. What are the alternatives? A lot of people like to think maybe one of the two witnesses, Elijah's easy. Everybody seems to agree that Elijah's one of them for all the obvious reasons. But a lot of people think it must be Enoch, and the reason they believe that is because Enoch and Elijah were the two guys that didn't die. And they quote Hebrews 9.27, as appointed a man once to die and after this judgment. They misapply that verse. The once to die thing is simply a rebuttal to reincarnation. There are a number of people that died twice. Lazarus died twice. He died, he was rose, and he later, later they killed him. Jairus' daughter died twice. The widow of Nain's son, and so forth. So... The once to die is re, uh, in Hebrews 9.27 uh, 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 is, is not a sufficient argument that Enoch, I don't think it was Enoch. First of all, Enoch wasn't Jewish. The witnesses are Jewish. Now, it shocks a lot of Jewish friends that they think everybody is Jewish, but from Abraham on, no, this is Enoch. Let's not go down that path. Enoch is Enoch a model of the rapture? He was taken out before the, before the flood. Uh, he was born and, and also translated on his birthday and uh, on the Feast of Shavuot. Feast of Pentecost. And so there's a whole thing you can get into there if you want to. Other people think it's John the Apostle and the writer of the book of Revelation because that verse in chapter 10, you will prophesy again. So well, maybe he's one of the two witnesses. I don't think so because he's the writer. He's, not, he's, not, he's a writer, not a participant. And then, of course, John the Baptist is another view, but he said he's not. So anyway, that's all that. So there's the two witnesses. They're in power for 1260 days. They call down fire from heaven and, and, and uh, they can also shut heaven with new rain for three and a half years. 
turn water into blood, and smite the earth with plagues. And obviously the first two are Elijah's unique distinctives, and the last two are Moses' unique distinctives. I think that, to me, the pattern's pretty clear. The two witnesses, it's interesting that there are always two witnesses. There were two witnesses at the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah in this case. There were two men at the resurrection, at the garden tomb, Luke 24. I would not be surprised if they were also were Moses and Elijah, although the scripture doesn't say that. It just says there were two men wrapped in white. And there were two witnesses at the ascension in Acts chapter 1. And it wouldn't surprise me if the two men in all three cases were the same people. But here's the part I like in verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. This is the first mention in the book of Revelation of the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit. Uh, the Antichrist, as we tend to call him. It's interesting that he's going to successfully kill them. It's interesting that they are invulnerable as, until their ministry is finished. No one can touch them until, until they finish their mission. Do you know who else that is true of? You. You. As long as God has a purpose, you're protected. Interesting. Think about that. When they shall have finished their testimony, then the beast that sent it out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. It's interesting that Matthew 16 promises that the church will not be overcome, prevail. Same word. Um, this d demonstrates that they're not part of what we call the ecclesia of the church. But they, uh, any of the Antichrist will kill them, and we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 13. Um, and kill them. And their, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So the Antichrist is going to kill them, and their dead bodies are going to lie in the street for three and a half days, it turns out, of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Now those, he's speaking in spiritual idioms there. Sodom in terms of immorality and Egypt in terms of idolatry. But so that you don't misunderstand, he adds a phrase to clarify what he's talking about, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. That's where they're going to be killed and that's where this is going to take place. And we could go through examples. That's not the, the Sodom reference to Jerusalem is in Isaiah 1 and 3 and Jeremiah 23 and Deuteronomy 32. And Ezekiel uses uh, four different illusions of uh, calling Jerusalem uh, like Egypt. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put into graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. Now here again I want to highlight your phrases here the earth dwellers. There are two kinds of people on the planet earth. Those who are pilgrims whose real home is heaven and those who are dwellers of the earth. It doesn't just mean they happen to be, they are dwelling in the earth. That's a, a distinctive phrase used throughout the book of Revelation. They that dwell upon the earth. And they're going to they're rejoice. They are so upset with these two prophets who have been ministering for three and a half years and uh, now they're killed. They don't even bury them. 
I, I, I guess this is a CNN exclusive. You get to you, you tune in and watch, watch it on the internet or whatever. There they are. And everybody on the earth, this is the only rejoicing in the book of Revelation by the world. The world is celebrating that these two troublemakers are finally done in. And man, here comes the exclusive. Okay. This is just a summary. Okay. And after three days and a half, <laughs> the spirit of life from God entered in unto them. And they stood upon their feet. And <laughs> a great fear fell upon them which saw them. Boy, I can imagine. Can you imagine that scene? And it's not, when the rapture occurs, it'll occur in the twinkling of an eye. Quick, sudden, not. When Jesus rose, it was slow, slowly. They went, he saw slowly. And uh, I think the same thing here. They stand, first of all. That's got to rattle the cameraman. And uh, great fear fell upon them which saw them. I'm reminded of the phrase in Daniel 5 where their knees smote one against another, you know. <laughs> and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Can you imagine that scene? <laughs> I don't know what kind of sense of humor Moses and Elijah have. But on the way up, I could imagine all kinds of things they might say. <laughs> Watch for the sequel, guys. <laughs> Man. And the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake there were slain of men 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, a third woe cometh quickly. That verse 14 hits you between the eyes because you've by now forgotten that all of this was an insert between woe 2 and woe 3, or between trumpet 6 and 7. We're going to pick that up now. But this has all been sort of parenthetical, explanatory, uh, um, discursive here. But uh, a tenth part of the city, that's typically the tenth part belongs to the Lord. And slain of 7,000. I find that kind of interesting. I'm not sure there's a linkage here, but I remember Elijah was all pouting in his big pout. And God says, there's 7,000 Israel you don't know about. Remember, 7,000 again, leaders and so forth. So there may be... There may be some parallelism there. I'll leave that up to you to, to sort through if you like. Um, so again, we have this heptatic structure. Um, we've been looking at, we've had the three woes, and this uh, parenthetical passage that we're part of, we're not finished with the parenthetical part, passage yet, but uh, is, is between uh, trumpet six and trumpet seven, if you will. And the trumpet seven will lead, when, it, when we get to it, to the seven bowls, and they'll also have their little parenthesis there. Finishing up this chapter, the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is a place where the authorized version has a subtle difference from the King James and the King James is wrong. It's singular. The term there in the Greek is actually a singular term. The kingdom of this world. It's Satan's kingdom we're talking about. Singular. Small point, but uh, uh, for what it's worth. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats or thrones fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. It may shock you to realize that God hasn't reigned. He's sort of, he's in control, and he intervenes from time to time in a number of ways. We wish he did more often, but not in the sense of reigning. And uh, this is what is being ushered in here. 
And uh, so the uh, and the the hast reigned is a is is a mistranslation. Thou hast begun to reign is more accurate translation. It's an ingressive first aorist active indicative for those of you taking notes. But the, it indicates that it's it's something that's now begun. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged, that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. This is a wrap-up phrase giving you the table of contents, sort of, of what's coming. This doesn't all happen in this verse. It's a layout of what's coming in the chapters that follow. Why are the nations angry? Because they want to have their own way, not God's way. And uh, all that's in Psalm 2 and so forth. They want to cast off all restraint. And uh, God's going to let them do that. They want utopia, God's going to give it to them and see where it leads. And uh, the result of their utopia will be Revelation 17 and 18 as we get into that. And their anger is going to lead to Armageddon. It's hard for us to imagine the nations taking up arms against God. That's what Psalm 2, read Psalm 2. So the, 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 the Trinity talk about it among themselves. Uh, very interesting, interesting passion. And God's anger is, he's not dispassionate. He's not dispassionate. He's angry. He hates sin and he's dealing with it. And then we get to the last verse. And the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Don't let this verse confuse you. The Ark of the Covenant has always been in heaven. What was on the earth was a replica. was a replica that was made after the pattern that Moses was shown on the mount. That's in Hebrews 9.23. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven. What is going to be on the earth will be the mercy seat. I'll be, I believe it's going to be the throne from which he rules. And that gets into a whole other discussion. I encourage you to dig into that if you're, uh, want, you know, want to learn about that. The, the seat of mercy is a briefing package that makes a distinction between the Ark of Covenant and this, what we think of as the lid, the, the mercy seat. Uh, we believe that uh, it's very possible that is, that is being controlled by the Ethiopians and will be presented as a gift to the Messiah on Zion when the time comes. They don't even realize that. But the real issue is the mercy seat not the Ark of the Covenant. But uh, there are seven great openings, by the way. Just, I'm just putting this on to prove that you can never list all the sevens because you think you have, there's always another. There are seven great openings in the book. Door open in heaven, chapter 4. The seals were opened in chapter 6. The abyss opened in chapter 9. The temple of God opened in chapter 11. The tabernacle testimony will be opened in chapter 15. Heaven is opened in chapter 19. The books of judgment are opened in chapter 20. And how many are there there? Good guess. Okay. Okay, so um, for your next session, this is important. Read chapter 12 more than once. It's one of the most important strategic summaries in the Bible, not just in the book of Revelation. And as you do that, your, your challenge is to figure out who is the woman in chapter 12. And uh, most commentators have it wrong. You'll see why. Now I say most, many commentators have it. And how does this chapter affect our perspectives today. How will this chapter, the thing as you read it, think about it, how does it impact our perceptions, our prejudices, our perspectives today? And that's your challenge for next time. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer.
Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for who you are. And we thank you, Father, that you've provided us this opportunity to know you, to get to know your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would just help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of him. Help us to understand the extremes that you've gone to that we might live and that we might be spared these dark things coming. We thank you, Father. You have provided a remedy for our sinfulness. You've provided an eligibility that we could never earn for ourselves. We thank you, Father, for that gift of grace. But we also thank you for your word, Father, and we thank you for this little book that we too need to assimilate, to digest, so that we too can prophesy again to many tongues, people, and nations. Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit you would illuminate that path before us, that you would help us understand specifically what you'd have of each of us in the days that remain, that we might be more responsive to your will, that we might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities before us. But that in all these things, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior and that we might be pleasing in your sight. As we commit ourselves this night without any reservation whatsoever, we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can see more podcasts on anchor.fm forward slash Bible 126. Also, there is a feature there where you can sponsor or make a donation to this page. Thank you and stay tuned for more episodes.